Well, we're thankful to God for the day that we've been given and for the opportunity to be together tonight and honor his name in worship. Thank you for being here. If you happen to be visiting with us, we're glad you came our way to engage in this worship, showing our love to God and our encouragement for one another in our faith. The title of the lesson tonight is Truth is Not a Multiple Choice Opinion Poll. That's about as specific a title, I guess, as I could come up with concerning what we're going to be talking about tonight. Um, As many of you know, I do a little bit of school teaching, and uh, I give evaluations, tests. They're not masterpieces of tests or uh, evaluation by any means. Uh, I'm kind of old school. I like old school type questions, good old true-false questions and multiple guess, I mean multiple choice questions. so the thing about a multiple choice question is, and I don't use a lot of them, but I use a few in most of the evaluations, the multiple choice question is it helps a student to discern the difference between what's correct and what's incorrect. Because you have examples of incorrect statements before you, and then you have the correct statement there. And it helps you to discern truth from error. I find that to be, I find that tests and evaluations are also very helpful teaching tools. There's a lot you can learn while taking a test. So I like those multiple choice questions. Multiple, I call them multiple guess questions because if you're, if you're a student and you haven't studied, you're just guessing. And that happens uh, frequently, I would say. You ever gotten one of those polls uh, or maybe... Uh, had to fill out something for work where they just wanted your opinion about things and they gave you multiple choices so there's no actual correct answer. It's just a poll. And you just fill in uh, whichever thing you want and there's no way to be right or wrong because there is no right or wrong. That is more like how people think about truth today. Where you're not taking a multiple choice test, you're just taking a multiple choice opinion poll. When it comes to ascertaining what truth is, there's no, there's no distinction to be made. There's no best or better. There's no right or wrong. There's no correct or incorrect. There's just your opinion. And your opinion nowadays, of course, equates to the truth, apparently. Because everybody's opinion, they say that's their truth about whatever it is we're talking about. That cannot be and is not the way that truth can be ascertained. Not biblical truth, not eternal truth, not God's truth truth. The reality is that when we turn uh, God's truth into merely uh, an opinion poll, we're not polling God anymore. We're not asking for God's truth. We're asking merely for human wisdom. And the approach that a lot of people then have to scripture is, well, this is, I'm looking at this, but it's really an opinion poll. And if they read something they don't like, well, they'll just interpret that in some way that they can like it. And they'll use reasoning like, well, I just can't see why God would do that, or I don't see how God would actually mean that, so it must mean something other than what it says, because my human wisdom can't process what it actually says, and so I can't accept that. Uh, We have the idea, well, you know, I'm doing something in my life. God's word says this, but I enjoy this thing. I'm doing it. It doesn't seem to hurt anybody, so I know God's word says something else, but that can't be right because I'm experiencing it in my life, and I like it. So I enjoy it. 
And, uh, well, God says, word says to do this, but that might cause friction or conflict in my life if I do that. And I want peace in my life and I want to be quote unquote happy. So what God's word says about that can't be actually the truth because happiness and peace, that's the truth to me. And then you have, of course, the uh, age old cry of the young people. God's word says this, but everybody else is doing that. (laughs) And -and so-and-so's parents let them do that, so why can't I do that? That's got to be okay because their parents say it's okay. And so they arrive at what's okay, what's truth in that way. And then you have uh, doctrinal discussions that come up with uh, sometimes brethren or those who are in denominations, and, and they'll assert, well, we do many things for which we have no authority because we've chosen to do them, or it's traditional, or... Uh, this works for us. So we do many things for which we have no authority. And that's just to admit that you're doing things that God has not authorized, and therefore they cannot be according to his truth. So here's what the Bible says. The Bible says, if any man speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If you're saying it's true, it needs to be true like God would say it's true. If any man speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 6, don't think beyond what is written. God doesn't want our opinions about, you know, what the truth is. That's not necessary at all. It's not, it's not uh, multiple choice when it comes. It's whatever is written, that's what the truth is. Don't even think beyond what is written. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, uh, if there's any other gospel than that which was preached, uh, the person who preaches that is a curse. There's not another gospel. There's no other Jesus And Jesus prayed himself, talking to the Father, your word is truth, John 17, 17. So the truth is whatever God's word says it is. We'll get back to that at the end of the lesson tonight. But what I want to do tonight is just illustrate uh, by looking at a couple of things that I'm going to present to you as if truth were an opinion poll, but it's not. Uh, And look at some answers that are given according to human opinion, that are not the truth, but are put off as the truth, or we pretend like are the truth. And then we'll look at what the Bible actually says about some of these issues. For instance, what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? Uh, Romans chapter 10 and verse 13. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So all you have to do to be saved, obviously then, is call on the name of the Lord. And everybody knows what that means, right? It's just saying, Lord. You, call, you say, Lord, and you're saved. Lord, save me, and you're saved. And that's the truth that some people get out of Romans 10 and verse 13. Is that the case? Is, is this just saying, say, Lord, save me, and you're saved, or acknowledge Jesus as Lord, and you're saved? Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21 that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will inherit the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So no, saying Lord is not what calling on the name of the Lord means, obviously. It must mean something other than that. Because Jesus said just saying Lord is not going to do it. It's not going to get you into the kingdom of heaven. But you must do the will of his Father who is in heaven. Well, someone would say, well, what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? Well, maybe it's just pray the sinner's prayer. And praying the sinner's prayer, uh, depending on who you are, the sinner's prayer might vary a little bit, but just basically somebody says, God, I'm a sinner, Uh, I acknowledge that, and I believe in you, so save me. 
and you pray a prayer something like that? Can that be? Can that be what it means to call on the name of the Lord? A lot of people believe they were saved that way by praying some kind of prayer. The story of uh, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus is very informative when it comes to this, as many of you are aware. So Saul's on the road to Damascus, and he has an encounter with the Lord, and he is blinded, and he's sent to Damascus, and he goes uh, into a house on Straight Street, and he's blind there. And the text tells us, as the Bible unveils this story in Acts chapter 9 and verse 11, that the Lord came to a man by the name of Ananias in Damascus, and he's telling Ananias to go and tell Saul of Tarsus, Paul, what to do to be saved. And the Lord said to Ananias, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. He is praying. Well, I have a lot of questions about this. If all you have to do to be saved is pray, some kind of prayer, and Paul was praying, probably very fervently because he was blinded when he saw the Lord, uh, why in the world would the Lord need to send Ananias <laughs> to go tell him to do anything if he was already praying? He's already doing the right thing to be saved. This, this account, of course, is told by Paul a couple of times later in Scripture. And when you come to Acts 22, he's telling it again. And he says that when Ananias got there, he told him, Saul, why are you tearing? Why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. A couple of things there. Number one, Saul of Tarsus still had his sins. He'd been praying for three days, apparently. But still was in his sins. Secondly, he's told to arise and be baptized, and then baptism would wash away his sins. Not praying. It's odd that he wasn't told to arise and pray a different prayer or something if the prayer, a sinner's prayer would save him. But that's, that's not what was done. And Ananias tells him to arise and be baptized and wash away his sins. So praying the sinner's prayer uh, is not what it means to call on the name of the Lord. The third thing that you notice in that verse is that Ananias tells him to arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So whatever calling on the name of the Lord means is inculcated in what Saul of Tarsus did. Not what he had been doing, but what he did when he, was arose, when he arose and was baptized. And so that seems to be pretty plainly what it means to call on the name of the Lord. Let's go back in our Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Many of you are familiar with this line of thought, but we need to find out what the truth is about what it means to call on the name of the Lord. We get a pretty big hint there in Acts 22 and verse 16. But in Acts 2, I think the question is squarely answered. The apostle Peter and the other apostles are standing preaching Jesus to this crowd of Jews on the day of Pentecost. Peter quotes lengthily from the prophet Joel. At the end of that quotation, uh, Joel had said in verse 21, It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the same passage as Paul's quoting in Romans 10, uh, uh, 12, 13 rather. 10.13. But Peter quotes it here and then proceeds with a sermon. A sermon that includes, as we go through it, verses uh, that tell of the coming of the Christ, his life, his death on a cross, his resurrection. 
And when Peter winds all that up, he says in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do to do what? Well, Peter started the sermon by quoting him Joel, who said, Call on the name of the Lord. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord is going to be saved. So they're wanting to be saved. And what shall we do to call on the name of the Lord? This would have been a perfect time for Peter to say, pray the sinner's prayer. Because that would be calling on the name of the Lord. Because that's what they're asking about, really. That's what Peter had told them, Joel had said. But that's not what he says. He doesn't say, pray the sinner's prayer. He says, Repent and let everyone be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 41, those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day there were added to them about 3,000 souls. In verse 47, these same people were praising God and having favor with the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. How did they get saved? Well, they called on the name of the Lord. How did they do that? They repented and were baptized for the remission of their sins. It's not, it's not multiple guess. It's not whatever your opinion is. It's what's delineated in the text of Scripture. You will be saved by God as long as you fill in the blank, right? Whatever, fill in the blank there. And as long as you do this, you'll be saved by God. So you'll be saved by God if you are sincere. And there are just a whole lot of people in the world believe that sincerity saves. If you are sincerely religious... If you are sincere in what you're doing, you'll be saved. When Paul was standing before Agrippa in Acts 26 and verse 9, he told King Agrippa, talking about his previous life before becoming a Christian, he says, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Was Paul sincere when he was persecuting Christians, when he was doing all of that against the name of Jesus? You better believe it. He later says, I, that's it. I was sincere. I was thinking in myself that I ought to do. This is really what I thought I ought to do. He was sincere as a person could be. As he drug out men and women to be uh, tried and probably killed as well, who were Christians. Saul of Tarsus wasn't sincere, was sincere, but he wasn't saved. In doing that. Similar to this, there are those who say, well, if you just let your conscience be your guide, that'll, that'll do it. God's going to save you as long as your conscience is your guide. In an earlier statement in Acts 23 and verse 1, along this same line, the Apostle Paul told uh, the Jews to whom he was speaking, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. I have lived in all good conscience. Here is a man who had been responsible for the martyrdom of Stephen, for the killing of, persecution of the church all over uh, Judea. And, and here he is saying, I did all of that in good conscience. I have lived in all good conscience to this day. So you can be a, a, a murderer of Christians, a persecutor of Christians, one who wreaks havoc on the church, do that, all that in good conscience, and, and as long as you're in good conscience, you're saved. If, that's, if the conscience is going to save you. But plainly, that's not, that's not going to do it. Well, somebody says, well, be realistic, Steve. The reality is, um, if you're just kind and devout 
and serious about worshiping God and you do good deeds for others and you're charitable, if you're that kind of person, God's going to save you. That's what it means to be a saved person. In Acts chapter 10, we're introduced to a person who was exactly like that. We know him as Cornelius. There was a certain man in Acts 10 and verse 1 in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what is called the Italian regiment. He was a devout man, one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. Wow, that is a very, very religious person. And he's uh, devout toward the God of heaven, in fact. He's doing good deeds. He's praying all the time. Surely he's saved if anybody's ever saved, right? But he's not saved. He's not saved. In fact, all of chapter 10 of Acts tells the story of how God sent the Apostle Peter and told, I should say, told Cornelius to go get the Apostle Peter. And then then God sent the Apostle Peter to come to Cornelius and tell him words by which, according to Acts 11 and verse 14, words that Peter would speak by which he would be saved because he wasn't saved. Though, although he was that good, devout, praying, charitable man that is described in, in Acts 10 and verse 2, he was that man, but he was not saved. He needed to be saved. And of course, when Peter came, spoke the gospel to him, he and his household, guess what, were baptized at the end of Acts chapter 10. So the thing about you'll be saved by God as long as you what? Believe and obey Christ, that's what. And there are lots and lots of verses that deal with this in Scripture that say it plainly. But John 8 and verse 51, Jesus says, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. You have to believe in Jesus. You have to keep his word. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's through Jesus and his instruction and his way. And Jesus said, among other things, uh, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. And then, what about the church? What do you think about the church? So here's our opinion poll. What do you think about the church? Is the church important? Is it important that you be a part of the church? I've had this conversation with people door knocking. Um, they'll, they'll tell me they're religious, they're spiritual, but they're, they don't go to church. They don't think church is all that important. If I've heard that once, I don't know how many times I've heard it. I just don't believe church is all that important. That's good to know. There's a lot of people that say that. Church is not very important. In, in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, the Apostle Paul speaks of the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That's really a strange thing to do, for God to do, if the church isn't important. Why in the world would the God of heaven allow his only begotten son to shed his blood to purchase the church? That is absolutely of no value. The priceless, precious blood of the Son of God, the Lamb of God, purchased the church. And I want to tell you what, if somebody says the church isn't very important, they have a very low estimate of the value of the blood of Jesus Christ. The church has value. It has great value. 
Somebody say, well, the church is, it's, they're just denomination that's started by men or a man. Um, maybe Alexander Campbell, maybe Martin Luther, maybe John Calvin, uh, whoever, but the church is just something started by a man. And they have this denominational view of what the church is. Jesus said in Matthew 16 and verse 18, I will build my church. Two or three things about that. First of all, he says he will build it. Secondly, it's his church. And thirdly, it's in the singular. There's only one of them. I will build my church, Jesus said. It wasn't started by man. The Lord condemns his apostles, condemned and deplore, calling ourselves religiously after men, saying we are followers of mere humans. It doesn't matter if they're apostles. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 12, some say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Christ. Paul asks, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? This denominational idea that human beings have about what the church is, is so far different from the biblical idea of what the church is. It's not something that was started by men, nor should it be divided up into sections that are led by various men. Along this line, there are some who say, well, the church is is made up of many different religious bodies. Again, this denominational concept. And yet, the Bible plainly says in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4 that there is one body. And the body in the book of Ephesians is the church. For in Ephesians 1 and verse 22 says that God put all things under the feet of Jesus, gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. The church is his body. So there's one body. Christ is the head of it. And it is the church. So what is the church anyway? It's pretty important. It's not a denomination just started by men. In fact, it's not one made up of many religious bodies. It is, in fact, the body of the saved. The one body of all of the saved. And until uh, we get our minds around that truth, that very, very important, fundamental truth, we're going to have a hard time getting into that body of the saved. In Ephesians 5 and verse 23, Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. He's the Savior of the body. So that means the body is composed of the saved. The saved were added to the church, we noticed in the King James Version in Acts 2 and verse 47. Let's think about... uh, A lot of people have a lot of different opinions about how how do you tell if somebody's a false teacher. It's kind of like, uh, how do you tell if somebody's a, a dirty politician? Here, here's the way Americans do that. Well, all of the guys in Congress, by guys I mean men and women who are elected to Congress, all of the people in Congress are dirty politicians. Everybody knows that, right? Except the person for, that I voted for in my district. <laughs> that person just happens to not be. The, the dirty politician, see? So that's kind of how 
we pick out false teachers because uh, the concept is, well, yeah, there are false teachers out there. There are bunches and bunches of them. But the preacher where I, where I go to church, he's not one of them. See, everybody thinks that way, so nobody knows what a false teacher is. They never experienced one because wherever they go, all the ones that come to their church to preach or using that accommodatively, they're all, they all speak the truth. Right? It's all the guys out there. How do you tell uh, who a false teacher is? A lot of people say, well, you know, you can tell by his evil appearance. He just, he just looks evil. He probably um, has a you know, swarthy look to him. Probably he's wearing a blue suit today and has really gray hair or something like that. I don't know. Is that how you tell? I mean, if that's how you tell, I could be in trouble. But the Bible says that Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. You cannot tell by looking. His, his appearance won't, will not give it away. Will not. There are those that appear outwardly to be angels of light who are servants of Satan. So the outward appearance and the way a man presents himself outwardly doesn't tell you. Somebody says, well, you, you can tell by their evil motives. I don't think you can. In fact, I know you can't. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1, very, pretty fascinatingly, really, talks about those who preach Christ even from envy and strife. Those are some really bad motives. If your motives for preaching are envy and to stir up strife, those are ungodly motives to say the least. So here are men who are preaching out of envy and strife. Some also from goodwill, though, Paul says. The former, that is the ones preaching uh, from envy and strife, preach Christ from selfish ambition. So there's another, that's, got a, that's a bad motive for sure. You're preaching from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains. So you're, you're preaching from selfish ambition. You're trying to take down the Apostle Paul. Others are preaching out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then, look at what Paul says in verse 18, only that in every way, whether or in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. So here were people who had the worst motives ever for preaching the gospel, but they were still preaching Christ. So no bad motives don't necessarily make you a false preacher. You, I, I think I've known men with really uh, questionable motives for their preaching, but they preach the truth. So that's not going to tell you. And, and I know there, I've got brethren that think this, this is the end-all, be-all to f- figuring out who a false preacher is. You've got to get to their motives and why are they doing this. And once you see what their motives are, then you know what the doctrine is. No, you don't. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 15, uh, Jesus speaks about those uh, false teachers or false prophets who come in sheep's clothing. You, you can't really tell by looking. You can't really tell by uh, the way they seem to be or what their motives might seem to be. Someone says, well, the way you tell a false teacher is because he's so negative all the time. And you go away feeling bad about everything. And he brings you down and it's, he's just this evil, depressing kind of person. Always negative. You know, he's one of these negative Nellies. He's always saying negative things. And so that makes him a false teacher. Actually, probably the opposite is closer to being true. 
You realize that, don't you? Because the truth is, Romans chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, Paul says, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned. That would be false teachers. So they're causing division contrary to true doctrine. He says, and avoid them, for those are such who do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the people. That doesn't sound like negative and depressing. Smooth and flattering? That's not negative and depressing. (laughs) Smooth and flattering is, oh, I feel good about myself. A, A false teacher is someone who makes you really, really feel good about yourself. And they'll flatter you. And the words just come like honey. And they're so easy to listen to and accept because they're so smooth. You, you will not be able to discern a false teacher by his level of negativity. And more, like, more than likely, the more negative he is, the closer probably is to the truth. Somebody that's negative all the time is not trying to impress anybody. He's not trying to uh, stroke anybody's ego. He's just telling you what he thinks the truth is. The Bible would have us know that we know false teachers by their fruit and by looking at the teaching itself, comparing it to Scripture. Matthew 7 and verse 16, you'll know them by their fruits. That's what Jesus said. When you turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter gives us some really great insight into this. Would you look at that with me? 2 Peter chapter 2, I should say, in verse 1. He says, there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. Well, that's a straightforward warning. There are going to be false teachers among us who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. Please notice the first characteristic of a false teacher that Peter lists. They secretly bring in destructive heresies. False teachers will try, at least especially at first, to stay under the radar because they don't want to be exposed. They'll work in small groups, pecking at the edges of a congregation or a group of God's people. That's how a false teacher works. He doesn't want to be exposed. Notice what Peter goes on to say. He says, Many will follow their destructive ways, so... Their ways are going to destroy things. They'll destroy a church. They'll destroy a family. They'll destroy your life. But their ways are destructive because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. People will speak evil about the truth because they're following somebody who's speaking error. When you get people bad-mouthing things that you know are true, that's the fruit of somebody who's teaching error. Now, Let me just bring this down to right here at Eastside, okay? There may be some things, and no doubt there are from time to time, that we need to do better or we need to correct or a mistake was made or an error was made and that needs to be pointed out. Let's do that. There's a certain place for honest and sincere rebuke from Scripture. But when somebody starts bad-mouthing things 
that are being done in this congregation that we know for a fact are in accordance with the truth of God's word, that person has been influenced by a false teacher. There is no other way around it. And we need to be able to see that and discern it. Peter goes on to say, the way of truth will be blasphemed because of this. And by covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. Many times, one of the hallmarks of false teachers is their desire for things, money, your things, and their deceptive words. John deals with uh, the problem of false teachers as well in 1 John chapter 4. We're not going to look at that in a lot of detail, but just to say that he gives us a kind of a blueprint for telling who false teachers are. He warns us in chapter 4 and verse 1 of 1 John, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they have God, because many false prophets have gone out in the world. In verse 6, verse 5, first of all, he's talking about the false teachers. He says, They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. Verse 6, he says, We are of God, he who knows God hears us. He who knows God, who's true, is going to listen to the words of the apostles. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Who's listening to what the apostles say and who's not? False teacher is known by his fruit and his false teachings. What's Bible fellowship? What's biblical fellowship? We hear the word fellowship still used a lot. It's a Bible word and a Bible concept. There are many who think that fellowship is dinner provided by the church. Uh, But the Bible says that the church uh, isn't in the business of providing dinner for members on a regular basis who can provide it for themselves. Paul asked the question to Christians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, don't you have houses to eat and drink in? It's not the work of the church, it's the work of your home to feed you. He says, if anybody's hungry, let him eat at home, verse 34. And he says also, similarly, in Romans 14 and verse 17, that the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. That's not what it's all about. Bible fellowship, the thing we share in that's, that's essential, that is, makes, makes us what we are in Christ, doesn't have anything much to do with eating together, although you wouldn't know that from the way that a lot of people think about fellowship. Fellowship, some people think, well, that's something that uh, we should have with worldly people. There is some caution to be had there. There is no doubt that Jesus ate with publicans and sinners, and if that alone established real fellowship, then... um, I think we've got a problem. But Christians are not to have fellowship with people of the world, at least not in the things that they do that are wrong. Paul lays this out clearly in Ephesians chapter 5. He says in verse 5, No fornicator, unclean person, covetous man, or idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. The word partakers there comes from the same word as fellowship. 
Don't be a fellowshipper with them in this stuff, in evil things. That's not to say you, you, you can't have contact with people in the world. You need to. But you're not going to participate in the evil that they're doing. You're not going to fellowship that with that. And, and clearly then in verse 11 he says, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. So in the time that you are um, in the presence of those in the world, your business is not to participate in their evil deeds, but your business is to expose their evil deeds. Here's what I note about Jesus' uh, time with tax collectors. He spent some time with tax collectors. And apparently tax collectors were known in the day Rightfully so, as traitors to their country, uh, those who extorted, those who cheated people out of money that wasn't due them, so on and so forth. They had that reputation, and deservedly so. From all indications, Jesus indicates that even the way he talks about them at times. But you know, want to know who a tax collector was? Matthew. Wait, you say, well, he was an apostle. He quit tax collecting. Yeah, I know. <laughs> right. Uh, Zacchaeus? Well, if I've taken wrongfully from any man, I'm going to restore full fourfold. He's, he stopped that, that graft, that cheating business, right? Because Jesus came into his house. So that's the effect that Christians are to have on people of the world. We may well interact with them and kindly do so. But by the time that interaction is, is over, if they've understood who we are and what our message is, they're going to change. That's the way Jesus affected tax collectors. That was his purpose. It wasn't just to fellowship them. It was to change them. Bible fellowship is joint participation in spiritual things. It is typically this throughout Scripture. The early Christians, the early Christians came together and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, Acts 2.42. The fellowship that John talks about in 1 John is fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. It's a fellowship that is based, he says in 1 John 1 and verse 7, on walking in the light. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us of all sin. That's fellowship. And as you read about the Word throughout Scripture, it's always when it's talking about the relationship between true disciples related to this kind of activity, spiritual activity, something on a higher plane. Teaching concerning marriage, divorce, and remarriage is fill in the blank. What would you say? Well, if this is just an opinion poll, somebody might say, it's too complicated to understand. Oh, you, you start studying that and all, and then it's pretty clear when I read the scriptures, but then somebody brings to me a, a, a situation, something that's happened, and wow, it really gets complicated because they, they've got all this stuff that went on. And I, I'm trying to fit with what the scriptures say. Jesus uh, was pretty plain. We're going to see in a minute what he said about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. But the Bible says that we can understand what the will of the Lord is. In fact, it commands us to. Be not unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is, Ephesians 5.17. So if we can't understand the will of the Lord, we can't obey that command. It may be somewhat difficult to understand some of it, 
But it is understandable, and we can do it. Somebody else says, well, you know, this kind of stuff is private. It's nobody else's business. That would have been news to the Apostle Paul when he wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5 and exposed this fornicator that they had among them, somebody in the very uh, process of defiling a marriage. Someone had his father's wife, and that was exposed to all, and the man was to be withdrawn from delivered to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Doesn't sound like a a private thing. When John the Baptist goes to Herod in Mark chapter 6, the record of that is, John the Baptist must not have thought that the relationship between Herod and Herodias was just a private matter up to them. Somebody says, why was he sticking his nose in Herod's business anyway? Why would, he, why would he go to Herod and tell him it was not lawful for him to have his brother Philip's wife, which is what he did, if it was just a thing between Herod and Herodias? Somebody says this is just something that's talked about too much. It probably isn't. It probably isn't talked about enough, but uh, there are those that w- don't want to hear about it anymore. On that same uh, example, John the Baptist goes to Herod, and the text says, uh, Mark 6 and verse 17, Herod had sent and laid hold on John, bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her, because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. There are different translations of this. The ESV says, uh, had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful to have your brother's wife. The New English translation, I think maybe even the more accurate of the ones that I looked at, if you look at the Greek tense here, has it this way. John had repeatedly told Herod. John had repeatedly told Herod. So, again, the the Greek there is it kept on saying to Herod. He just kept it up. He didn't stop. Didn't stop talking about it because the man hadn't repented. The truth is that uh, teaching concerning uh, marriage, divorce, and remarriage is regulated by the words of Jesus Christ, who said, What God has joined together, let not man separate. And who said, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Lastly, tonight, This is not on your worksheet if you're following in your worksheet because I didn't have room for it. Same thing comes to modest dress. When we start talking about uh, dressing modestly and what that means specifically, I'm hearing a lot nowadays that that cannot be adequately defined. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 9, Paul commands women to adorn themselves in modest apparel. Right? Is that what your Bible says that? My Bible says that. Adorn themselves in modest apparel. Now, if I can't adequately define that, then I can't keep that command. That's, I mean, that's, that's what brethren are saying. We cannot adequately define what modest and immodest is, and therefore, whatever you feel, just go ahead and do it. You might as well just say this is an opinion poll. Modesty is an opinion poll. Is it? 
Is it an opinion poll? That's kind of what I'm getting. Because anytime it seems like I preached on this or I talked about it with young people, I always get a little bit of feedback. Well, you can't really say that is immodest. Nobody can say what's immodest. If nobody can say it, we can't keep this command. Let's be real with it. This means something. We need to figure out what it is. Some, some say, well, this is a command only for women. I know uh, I thought that way for a long time. Certainly 1 uh, Timothy 2.9 is directed to women. Romans 13 and verse 14 says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. That's directed to all of us in everything we do. So, modest dress is that which shows godliness. So, if we can look at somebody's apparel and see godliness, then we know it's modest. If we can't see godliness, it's not. That's the test. That's exactly what 1 Timothy 2.10 says. Modest apparel is that which is proper for women professing godliness. Thank you for your great attention tonight. Um, The main thing we've tried to get at is truth is not really a matter of human opinion. We have a lot of opinions about truth. Most of the ones that, you know, people come up with with are obviously not right because they're not in accordance with God's word. God's word is the right answer. Whatever God's word says, that's the right answer. Psalm 119 verse 129, all your precepts concerning all things I consider to be right. You want the right answer to what truth is? God's precepts. And hate every false way. There has to be a discernment between what the right answer is and the wrong answer is. It's not an opinion poll. It's multiple choice. And there's only one right answer. God's choice. Again, I appreciate your good attention tonight. And I hope this principle will guide us. Maybe some of the specific things we've talked about tonight will help you on those issues. But the, the point is the big principle of going to God's word to establish truth and not make it a matter of human opinion. Thank you for listening. And if there's one subject tonight to the invitation of Jesus Christ who needs for the prayers of the church, who's needing to be saved because you've never named the name of Jesus, never been baptized for the remission of your sins, whatever you need, we'd ask you to come while we stand and while we sing.